Welcome back to the 96th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories about unions. We're going to be talking about the good, the bad, the ugly, you know the cliche. We're going to try to cover all aspects and get a well-rounded view of what's going on currently in the union sphere. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, honestly, it feels like we are going through a union revitalization. You often hear about, you know, some strikes, some walkouts, you'll see them in the news, things of this nature. And many progressives argue that unions are what grew the middle class during the period after the Great Depression until about the 80s when you, of course, saw Reagan come in and, you know, really shift the landscape. But now we actually get to the debate part. Do you think that this growing union movement will be an overall boom, maybe a boost, or a bust for the future of America and its job market? I'd love to hear your thought processes. Throw it down in the comment section below. Let's jump to our first article. This one comes from the Washington Free Beacon. So we have a little excerpt here talking about Philip Howard. He's been writing some books about the power of workers, unions, and we're going to give you a little bit of his background so you understand where he's coming from, and it sets up the article pretty well. Quote, for over two decades, attorney Phil Howard has endeavored through his nonpartisan organization Common Good to promote a restoration of common sense in government operations by replacing bureaucratic red tape and legal roadblocks with individual accountability. In his newest tome, Not Accountable, Howard traces the lack of government accountability to what he concludes to be an underlying source, quote, the risk of public employee unions. Whereas his earlier works described a flawed governing philosophy that overemphasized procedural rights at the emphasis of at the expense of public good applied by people acting in good faith, this one is a story of raw power in democratic disloyalty. End quote. So I want you to picture something. You are driving to your local school. You're trying to drop off your kids. Maybe this is 20 years in the future. Maybe you have kids right now. And as you're going down the roads, you feel a few potholes underneath your car. You go ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And, you know, you start to think, oh, why Why are the roads so bad around here? What's What's been happening? And as you keep going, you run across a protest of road workers outside who normally are contracted by the local municipality that you live in and they're protesting that their wages are not high enough that they are not getting the benefits that they deserve and the thought of course would go through your mind ah so that's why this isn't getting dealt with you know they're not getting the wages they deserve so at the end of the day that's why our roads are not in the best shape and the reason I say all this is because I want you to think about the amount of power that these public sector unions have. 
They deal with things that are extremely important to our everyday lives. They deal with what would be perceived as public goods, public services. They deal with the roads. They deal with schools. They are some of our police officers, some of our firefighters. So you can see how much power they really do have. If those workers, those road workers that I meant mentioned in the story, if they walk out, then the new road projects, the repairing the infrastructure, that won't get done. And then people notice, oh my gosh, look at that. The roads, they're not getting paved. My politician isn't doing their job. And then they vote with the union in order to, or at least they pressure the politician to give them a little bit higher wages so that they can have their roads in good order when they're trying to take their kids to school. And I know that was a long-winded way of saying it, but it really does demonstrate how much power these unions have. And there's a few more aspects to it that Howard really dives into that I think are interesting, and we need to at least explore them. Quote, such a lack of accountability, Howard observes, is an endemic in American government, with many public managers reporting that they're, quote, never seen a public employee dismissed for poor performance, end quote. For instance, of the 2,600 complaints that the Minneapolis Police Department received during the decade prior to Floyd's arrest, only 12 led to any disciplinary action, of which the most severe was a 40-hour suspension in 2019. Howard reports a New York school principal was found to have created a fraudulent system of school achievement in order to boost his record. Though he was dismissed thanks to his union's contract, he will get a full salary and benefits of over $265,000 annually for the next seven years. So you can't actually, for the most part, you can't actually fire people that are not being the most productive. And this is the case for all unions. At the end of the day, if you're not doing your job properly, if you're not being productive or as productive as you could be, or you are somehow changing the game a little bit in your favor, for the most part, a lot of these unions will come to aid you and make sure that you don't lose your job. And they will make sure that these companies, or in this case, the public sector, the government, will go through years of years of legal fees. And that's expensive. So the government says, okay, it's not worth trying to fire this person. We'll just put up with a few of their mismanagements. So let's go back to the road example that I gave earlier. Imagine that they are this group that is doing the roads, the workers who are making sure our infrastructure is A-OK in your municipality. They are filling in the potholes, but they're doing a, a, a subpar job. They're filling them in, but they're not patting them down. They're not sealing them properly, something to that effect. So within two months, those potholes are right back there. Well, that's beneficial for the road workers because now they have to spend more time going back on a contract with the area again, and then they have to go and replug those holes. So it's beneficial for them. They get paid again to go out and fix the roads in certain areas, but it's not beneficial for the consumer. They're going to be frustrated that those potholes that weren't there a little bit ago because they were supposed to be fixed are now starting to form again. But imagine they go to their representative and they say, no, we need to make sure that these potholes are filled in correctly. This is unacceptable. 
And then the representative turns around, goes talk and talks to the company and tries to get them to fire these guys so that they can get more competent people on the job. And then the union says, oh, no, 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 they did their job. They did their job. They're going about everything they need to do. And this attempt to fire our workers, this is unethical. This violates this law or that law or any other labor law. And then they take it to court. So now, not only are the roads not getting paved in a great way, and your taxpayer dollars are not being utilized in the most efficient way, but also now your municipality has to spend money paying lawyers to make sure that these union workers are either fired, reprimanded, or something to that degree. So then more of your taxpayer dollars are going to that. You can see how this is an inefficient cycle that doesn't keep these companies that are public sector companies or public sector utilities, it doesn't keep them liable. And that's what Howard means when he's saying they're not accountable. At the end of the day, they're just passing the buck along. They're just saying, oh, no, 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 no. We're essential. You don't understand what you're talking about. You can't just fire our workers, even if they're not producing things exactly how you want them. So, you know, there's also a bit of power that these unions, these public sector unions, can wield. And Howard points this out. And I think there's another interesting point that I hadn't necessarily thought about at first. Quote, Howard attributes such an epidemic failure of modern American government as bad schools and unaccountable police officers on the legalization, beginning in the early 1960s, of public collective bargaining which enables unions to impose more, even more restrictive limitations on the capacity of government managers to do their job. These have included limits on resigning or dismissing incompetent personnel, allocating responsibilities for projects, and such mundane managerial prolegates as dropping in on a classroom or informally asking employees how to improve things, end quote. So what he's getting at here is at the end of the day, with these collective bargaining agreements, these unions have been able to position themselves and say, no, 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 this is a member of our union. You can't get rid of this person even if you think they're a little bit incompetent. You can't say that, oh, this project, I'm taking it away from you. No, you have to make sure that if he's a union worker that he maintains his project so he gets to keep his salary. Or at the end of the day, dropping into a classroom and asking how they can improve things. Well, no, are you implying that I'm a bad teacher? That's not okay. You can't be saying that. I'm going to talk to my union about this. You're, you're saying I have to improve? No, I'm doing a great job. So these collective bargaining agreements give them a lot of power. And let's be clear, that is the point of a union. The point of a union is people come together and they ask or beg or strike for more pay, more benefits, so on and so forth. They exert their power as a voting block, as a job group, so to speak. But in the public sector, it's very, very different because at the end of the day, a lot of these services are absolutely essential. It's not like the Starbucks union. You don't have to have that coffee. You don't have to have that coffee at the beginning of the day. And even if you do, another company could come up and do its job for them. If Starbucks unionize and they close a location in your area, well, then you might have Caribou Coffee or another luxury coffee brand come in and replace them in that location. But what happens if a school shuts down? If a school shuts down, you can't just send your kids somewhere else. 
There might be private tutors. You might be able to create a pod, but that's not necessarily sustainable for everybody long term. So you see the point here. Some of these services are extremely, extremely important to the everyday life of Americans. And that, along with the collective bargaining power that they have, allows them to really put the drill to their managers and politicians. And there's one other part about it, which is they can elect their own leaders. Quote, public officials commonly have a strong interest in caving to those demands because union members vote in high numbers and offer in-kind assistance at election time by campaigning for favored candidates. In place of the advertising bargaining that transpires in the private sector, as the website of the American Federal, State, and City Municipal Employees, one of the nation's largest public unions, by the way, quote, we elect our own bosses, so we've got to elect politicians who support us and hold those politicians accountable, end quote. And I know I really buried the lead here because this is something that's very important. At the end of the day, these public sector unions have the ability to pick who their boss is going to be. So they're going to pick people that are pro-union. Then those politicians are going to pass more pro-union legislation. And if they don't, then those unions who have very high voter turnout and, like the article just said, are very active, they're very politically active, they're willing to go out and campaign for people that they like, they're going to get those politicians out of office as soon as possible if they are not helping and protecting unions. So it's a very vicious cycle. You only get more concessions to the union over time. And if you have people that want to peel back to take some of those concessions off the table and they want to make sure that unions don't have as much power in a local municipality, then those unions won't go out and support them and they won't turn out for them and they won't do canvassing. And then at the end of the day, they're less likely to get elected. You can see how this is a vicious cycle that leads to only more power to the unions. So there needs to be a step back. We need to say, okay, private sector unions, great. You can do what you want to do. If you want to unionize, go right ahead. Now, as I'll explain in the next article, there are reasons that private unionization is not actually going to benefit people like they think it will, but there is a lot of power to collective bargaining in the private sector. But in the public sector... They wield an unseemly amount of power because they, one, elect their bosses, two, normally are essential services that everybody needs. So we need to roll back some of the power that they have. Maybe, like I suggested in our final article that I'll be reading today, we need to have a wage rate that is in accordance with inflation. So if there's a 7% inflation then your wage goes up by 7% that year. If there's 3% inflation in one year, your wage goes up by 3%. So then, at the end of the day, you can't just have, oh, well, you know, in 2019, we went for a pay, wa- pay raise. In 2021, we're going to strike for a pay raise, but then it could be until 2025 that they strike for another pay raise. And th- basically, they're only striking when they find it convenient or when the pay gets bad enough. Rather, if you have a wage that is based and adjusted for inflation on a yearly basis, then at the end of the day, 
these unions won't get together as often because more of their members will be satisfied with their pay. They'll actually be able to maintain a similar standard of living over the years. And that's one method that will limit the amount of union strikes and the amount of negotiation that will have to be done. Of course, there will still be some about benefits, but you could even make some of the benefits inflation-adjusted as well. If you get $50,000 of medical coverage, then you just look at it, say, okay, uh, $50,000 as of this year, if we have inflation of 7%, then you add 7% of that $50,000 to their wage benefits package. So then... At the end of the day, they are constantly making more money each year. And when I say more money in raw numbers, but inflation adjusted, it's the exact same amount. So then these unions don't meet as often. They don't have as much of an incentives, or at least the members, to go in and try to change their deal because they're getting a good deal that allows them to maintain a similar standard of living throughout their life. Now, of course, that's not going to stop the unions altogether. They might have terrible working conditions in one location and they might need to come together and use their collective bargaining to change those accommodations in that area. But if we have it so that the main issues that they talk about, benefits and wages, are dealt with, then they're less likely to get together and strike and therefore they'll have less incentive or I say they'll have less power over the politicians because when they strike that's when you see it directly affect normal, everyday people. And that's when those politicians get scared because they get letters, they get calls from everyday people. Why aren't you supporting the unions? You're getting in the way of me taking my kids to school in the analogy that I was talking about earlier with the road strikers. So let's jump to a different article from Common Dreams that talks about private sector unions. And this one's about Starbucks. What unioned Starbucks workers think of Howard Schultz's testimony to Bernie Sanders? So there's a lot of layers to this, and Starbucks has been in the news recently for a lot of their anti-union behavior. And the testimony was actually pretty interesting with Schultz in front of Congress. Quote, it was honestly hard not to laugh out loud at some of the bald-faced lies he told, said James Green, in regard to the appearance of former CEO and current board member Howard Schultz at the Senate Committee on Housing, Education, Labor, and Pensions. And it's so cute because it's actually called HELP. Oh, look at that. We actually came up with a funny acronym. Oh, wait, that's basically the only thing we can do with our bills. Sorry. Quote, he denied breaking the law repeatedly as senators were listing off multiple judge rulings against Starbucks, Green added. End quote. So at the end of the day, this is a Starbucks worker. They're trying to get their opinions here. And he said it's hard not to laugh out loud at some of the lies. And you, when you have your workers who are trying to unionize and they listen to some of these hearings that Howard Schultz is in, and they see that he's warming around, he's trying not to get basically screwed by Sanders or any other of the Congress people. He's trying to not get pinned down. Even I, as a person who's not necessarily all for unions, and a person who likes Starbucks as cheap as it is, I do find it hilarious to see him squirm all over the place. And his quote about being a billionaire and 
it was, it was funny to say the least to make it sound like, Oh, I'm a billionaire, but I shouldn't be persecuted. Like if you did something wrong, you should be persecuted. I don't care if you're a billionaire, if you did something wrong, if you did something illegal, then it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire. Now I do agree. He said, I'm a billionaire. I've worked hard for what I got. That's fair. I've read the startup story of Starbucks and Schultz worked his butt off day in, day out in order to get this company where it is. But, you know, we can move on from that. that that's a little bit of the background. Now, there was a lot of disappointing comments from some of the workers at Starbucks. They were very frustrated with this testimony. Quote, but if viewers were expecting an inquisition from the senators that would reveal new details about Starbucks' anti-union push, instead they received what was mostly a milk toast intervention met with successful stonewalling by Schultz. For example, there was little discussion acknowledging that along with the NLRB, or National Labor Relations Board, federal courts have also found that workers' claims of retaliation have merit. This allowed ranking Republican Senator Bill Cassidy and other supporters of Schultz to muddy the waters with claims about the NLRB bias. Senators asked Schultz about why the company had not reached a contract with any unionized stores despite having the opportunity to negotiate with them within the first 450 days. So to back up with the NLRB bias, this is very, very true. They are biased. In this case, they're biased in favor of workers rather than companies. The NLRB is meant to be a place that you take your cases and they hear the merits from both sides. They're meant to help companies and possible unions and workers get along and get through these hard times. But when you have a Democrat who gets in, they are very often allowed to appoint a few members to the NLRB. So, of course, Biden, as a pro-union candidate, is going to put on people that are pro-union. So, of course, they are a little bit biased. But that also does not mean that some of Starbucks's practices have not, at the end of the day, been illegal in the way that they're trying to stop these unionized workers from going to new locations and unionizing these different locations across the United States. But at the end of the day, I want to make sure that we are aware that the NLRB is biased, but that doesn't mean that they're not serving a good purpose. They just need to be balanced out. And that's almost impossible because if a Republican gets into the presidency, he's going to appoint people that are more pro-business. We're never going to have a fixed rule where you have to have four people from one side, four people from another side, and then one person who's in the middle. That will never happen. So, of course, this is going to fluctuate. But at the end of the day, this hearing shows that, you know, not much is going to be able to get done. Schultz is going to go there. He's going to squirm around. He's going to do his business thing. He's going to be a charismatic leader of a company, or in this case, a board member, and say that they did nothing wrong. And, you know, you can't really expect anything to happen. This committee was never meant to actually fix anything. But it is important that it's happening to highlight this issue and bring it back to the forefront. Because it was in the news about 18 months ago when this movement started. And it's really fallen out of favor of the mainstream media ever since then. And there are, you know, a few appeals to emotion throughout this article. They're talking about baristas that are dealing with sub 
living wages or cut in their hours in retaliation against union activities. And it's meant to really pull on your heartstrings. But I wanted to point out, and I want to remind people and these baristas, let's be clear, if I was a barista and I'm getting not paid enough, I would want to leave. I may want to push for higher wages. I can't deny that. But also remember, when you unionize, you are raising the cost for Starbucks at that location. You're going to have to pay your workers more money. You're probably going to have to pay them more benefits. So they're going to start limiting your hours. They're going to have to fire some people in that location. And then also through the process of unionizing, they are paying lawyers to fight back, to you know make sure that this doesn't get out of hand. They're also paying lawyers to advise them on how to best go about protecting their assets and ensuring that they can keep their bottom line going without violating the law when they're firing or changing the rules at some of these locations. So I think that's an important thing to think about here because this appeal to emotion is true. Some of these baristas are not making a living wage. But at the end of the day, if they unionize, they're forcing Starbucks' hand in these locations to cut costs wherever they can because unionized locations have to pay more money to their employees. And that makes it extremely hard to be as economically efficient as possible without raising prices for the customer. Because if the customer has to pay an extra dollar for a coffee, some people will pay that, but not everybody will. And if the foot traffic in that location goes down, then they really can't pay for those extra union benefits that these workers want. So you see how it's a cycle that both sides are caught in, and it's a really hard process. But there, of course, is progress across the nation. Right now, about 300 stores and about 7,000 workers have been unionized throughout the United States. The sad thing is it's about only 3%. So they had a little bit of steam at the beginning. They were moving fast, and now things are slowing down a little bit. And that's probably why this is important to get this story out there and back in the front pages. So at least people will be aware if they want to support these unionizers, they can. That's a beautiful thing about America. If you like a cause, give money to the cause and make sure that you speak about it and you put it out there. And at the end of the day, we'll see how this keeps going. I don't think that Schultz is going to get convicted. I don't think any of the CEO bosses are going to get convicted or Starbucks, I guess, technically as the corporation. I don't think they will get convicted. And I don't necessarily think they should be convicted. If they broke the law, yes, they should be convicted. But I'm not saying that just because these allegations are going around, they should be convicted. It has to be proven in court first. All right, let's jump to our last article. This one comes from Truthout. Workers in second largest U.S. school district demand raises during three-day strike. So this actually happened, I believe it was a week about a week ago, that this story actually hit the news. But the reason I wanted to bring it up is because it really speaks to the public sector unions that we were talking about earlier, because it's talking about school teachers. So I'm going to read you the opening of this article, which is a heartbreaking story, or at least a one that is really meant to pull on your heartstrings so you have a little bit of empathy for the rest of the article. Quote, at the School of Social Justice, Julia Juarez is one of a kind. She's the sole bilingual teaching assistant. Despite her unique role on campus of more than 400 students, 
35% of whom are learning English. Quora's hourly pay is $16.91, not much more than California's minimum wage of $15.50. The income she receives from the L.A. Unified School District, where she worked since 2016, is not enough to get by in one of the most expensive cities. End quote. So this is another aspect. And when I brought up a wage that is inflation-adjusted earlier, Maybe I should have also said a living wage in the locations that these school districts are found. Because, yeah, maybe if you have a wage that is inflation-adjusted over time, sure, they're getting paid more each year, but that doesn't take into account where they are teaching. And, I, you know, the term living wage is tricky because people live in different ways. They have very different tendencies, different food Habits. Some people really like to get a steak, and some people are okay with getting a cheap half salad from Subway. So living wage is a tricky term. But this is something that even if her wage was inflation-adjusted, it still wouldn't help her live in L.A., which is one of the most expensive cities in the United States. So maybe it has to be a regional. They come up with a, okay, this is the living standard. This is what most of our teachers should be able to afford. This is what we want them to be able to afford. And then in those negotiations from that point forward, they say, okay, this is where we are locking the wages. And the reason that's important is because this strike that they're having right now has two different groups to coming together. We have the LAUSD classified workers and the United Teachers Los Angeles of Los Angeles. The, both of these unions, there's about 30,000 in the first, 35,000 in the second. So altogether, 65,000 workers were walking out. This brought schools to an absolute standstill for three days. This is unacceptable. And so the thing is, this article has some quotes talking about parents who are actually supporting these strikes. They're like, oh, I don't want my kids to be out of school for three days. But if these teachers aren't being treated fairly, then uh, we need to address that. No, no, your kid needs to be in school. And this is the problem in the mentality. A lot of parents are not upset at the unions for pushing for these strikes because they hear these heartbreaking stories about these teachers who aren't getting paid enough. And they're like, oh, it's okay. We can, we can have my kid out of school for three days. Yeah, what happens when it's seven days? What happens when it's two weeks? What happens if it's three days every single month? If you're losing three days every single month, let's say you go to school for eight months out of the year. I think that's pretty accurate with all of the breaks. So then you do a little bit of math there for a half a second. You do three times eight. Guess what you get? 24. And then that's 24 days. It's almost an entire month of the school year that your child is not actually in school, not attending school. That is unacceptable. And we can't allow this to keep happening because the schools are a place where our children go to learn, the future leaders of our country. And if for one month, 24 days out of the year, they are not actually in school, then this is detrimental to the kids. And I'm not trying to just use them as a, a bargaining point. Oh, it's all about the kids. But it's one aspect of this. It disrupts the daily lives of people. Some parents have to stay home because they can't hire a nanny, which means they can't go to their job. They may be put in a rough situation where they can't necessarily pay the bills the next week because 
at the end of the day, they had to spend three days out watching their kids. So you see how this has effects that ripple through the community. And that's the point. That's why these strikes are so powerful. But they are too powerful. They are too costly to the environment around these schools and the people that rely on them. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind when we have discussions about public sector unions. All right. That's enough rambling for me on that one. Let's get to a positive topic. Let's get to our daily delight. The animal rescue site. Clingy cat refuses to leave human side. So if you ever go hiking in southern Virginia, when you return, you'll, you'll find those little birds that are clinging to you like a high school girlfriend. And that's how I would describe this cat. Quote, if you happen to have a cat that loves being by your side, then you may have a feline like Meatball. The beefy cat absolutely loves his human, and wherever she goes, Meatball goes, end quote. And when they say everywhere, they mean everywhere. Quote, Candace also loves having the cat with her. She feels happy when he is around, and she likes feeling happy. So she takes him everywhere. When she talks about the cat with the dodo, she says he is kind and gentle, and she refers to him very lovingly and as very loving, and he has no fear when it comes to adventure. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article, or you want to read any of today's other articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post links to the YouTube video on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So you don't have to go searching. You can just click straight through. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.